you know, the other thing that coincides with stress is this sort of emotional reactivity, right? So if I'm stressed, it sets off this whole cascading events within my body and my brain, and that then I'm more emotional. Think of the way in which we've talked about before, how with even memory and retrieval, and I'm trying to access other data points that would help me solve the problem. And yet I have this cog called my feelings. (laughs) And then we could get into the constraints around my own internal narrative, like, what's wrong with you? I can't believe you can't solve this simple problem. Like, what's wrong with you? Get it together right? That whole negative inner critic that comes out to play. And like none of that is going to work well to help you solve it any better. Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. If you have specific questions or concerns, we encourage you to consult a health professional in your local area. From Changelog Media, this is Brain Science, a podcast for the curious. We're exploring the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and what it means to be human. It's brain science applied, not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to transform our lives? I'm Adam Stachowiak. And I'm Dr. Marielle Reese. So today I want to examine and potentially debunk this try harder method of problem solving. You know, from my experience, uh, staying in the moment doesn't always lead to solving the problem, but getting away, taking a shower, maybe a walk, playing with the kids, you know, going for a bike ride. uh, They enable my mind to wander, make connections, and potentially influence these aha moments that that's how I solve my problems is getting away, sort of unplugging. Yeah, I think most, if not all of us, can relate to that when we encounter a problem of sorts, especially cognitive tasks or trying to figure out a way to make things fit and yet nothing works. And so we're like, well, if I just, you know, grip my teeth and push harder, try harder, I'll get there. And it just doesn't ever really seem to pan out that way. It seems like if I, if I get away from the desk, if I get away from specific you know, like in, I don't know how to, to describe it besides like in the mix. You know, if I get out of the mix and I go and do something that's completely different, for some reason, that's when like things begin to connect. You know, I'm thinking of like maybe a fun idea that we're doing with a partner or a sponsor or a new show topic or things like that. Like having time to sort of disconnect from, I would just call the crazy, is that the schedule, the things we have to do, you know, kind of unplugging gives my, my, it's almost like going to play. You know, if you, if you let your mind play a little bit, for some reason that, that seems to work for me to unplug and problem solve. Yeah. You know, I think I'm most familiar with this and I just learned this when I was in graduate school because there were a few late nights and early mornings (laughs) in that experience. And, you know, there were deadlines, right? So I was always pushing to get things done. And that wasn't, I mean, school wasn't just my only thing I was doing. And so to practice sort of figuring out what things would work, and I'm pretty sure it was early on that I was like, ah, screw it. 
Like I just ended up walking away. And sometimes that would be if it were late at night, you know, I'll just wake up early and try to get whatever it is done. And I've always, you know, then gone, that's my my go-to move is like walk away, come back or go to bed and revisit it in the morning because it'll take me like a third of the time to figure something out or get where I wanted to be in the morning than it would if I tried to push harder or try harder. Well, think about the what you're expressing there. It's like you were stressed. Touche. Right? You were stressed Touché. to such a point that you had to walk away. Yeah. And what happens under stress? We, we both know. Right. What happens? All these bad things. <laughs> this is why I'm so fascinated with the brain and what it does, because it's not just one system or one thing. It's like this sort of cacophony of different, you know, intersecting variables. When we get stressed, I think the thing that stands out the most is how we literally get tunnel vision because that's yeah. that's super adaptive, right? Well, it's yeah, exactly. It's adaptive. It's uh, it has a purpose. It does work in certain scenarios. And so when we're in stress modes, it would make sense for us to laser focus on specifics versus all the wide details. Right. It's not important. Right. So it's like I think of like, you know, ratcheting down and sort of like buckling down and like, oh, I'm just going to like grit my teeth and get grittier. <laughs> and so I'm I'm really reinforcing that, you know, honing of the lens. So ironically, I'm imposing more pressure, more constraints by trying to try harder. Yeah. This try harder aspect is tough because you, you almost there's a contradiction to some degree. You know, I don't always tell my kids to try harder, but to some degree you want them to try again. So you, you almost sort of perpetuate that in different scenarios. And so in some scenarios, it makes sense to just try harder, especially in new learning, right? If you're just beginning, persevere. So try harder and persevere might be synonymous to some degree. So there's some cases where it sort of makes sense as advice, but with maybe a few caveats, you know, because it's not always just try harder. Sometimes it makes sense when you're trying to learn or problem solve to sort of just take a step back. And it's that whole aspect of just allowing your mind to sort of make connections where in the subconscious, which we'll talk about and stuff like that, that sort of, they sort of linger, your thoughts sort of linger out there. You have knowledge embedded in your brain that you're just not aware of. And if you allow it to make those connections, somehow it does. It's a pretty smart organ. Right. I think there's so many ways in which it seems antithetical. Like this is not what should happen, right? Like if right. I want to go north, I should go south. Like, uh-uh. <laughs> That's totally right. not the way things work. And yet, you know, part of what you're getting at, Adam, is, you know, the other thing that coincides with stress is this sort of emotional reactivity, right? So if I'm stressed, it sets off this whole cascading events within my body and my brain, And that then I'm more emotional. Think of the way in which we've talked about before, how with even memory and retrieval, and I'm trying to access other data points that would help me solve the problem. And yet I have this cog called my feelings. (laughs) And then we could get into the constraints around my own internal narrative, like, what's wrong with you? I can't believe you can't solve this simple problem. Like, what's wrong with you? Get it together. Right. That whole negative inner critic that comes out to play. And like none of that is going to work well to help you solve it any better. Well, if you think about environment playing a role and perspective, you know, you can't have the same or, you know, you can't have a different perspective 
if you're in the same place. Sure. Right. So to get a different perspective, a different vantage point of a problem, of a scenario, whatever it might be, you have to sort of move and maneuver. And environment plays a key role in that too. Is like they're all systems, and so sometimes just getting away kicks in a new system. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe a, a new thought process or a memory or just anything, something different changes. You have a new view. Yes. Yeah, because it's interesting. Whenever we're trying to exercise problem solving, you know, we're trying to relate or sort of figure out a way to make something fit within the constraints of previous knowledge, right? So I'm going, if this is what I already know, I'm going to try to conjure that up and make it fit. And yet what if then, which is super common (laughs) because problems could be novel, I've never done them before, but yet I'm trying to use old data to resolve it. Mm -hmm. And so this is where it comes into this process of looking at sort of unconscious versus conscious awareness. So if we're talking about this um, so that our listeners understand what we're referring to. So consciousness means like with awareness, like I'm, I'm wholeheartedly aware of what I'm doing. Like, you know, I'm aware that I am riding a bike or I'm aware that I'm sitting in front of my computer. That contrasted with unconscious or sometimes people will say subconscious, but what that really simply means is without or outside of awareness. So breathing might be a good example of that. Sure. That happens. Mm -hmm. Is that a good example or no? Well, yeah. I mean, it gets a little tricky when you're talking about physiological (laughs) processes, right? But unconscious is because what that is automated, like it's just automatic. My body's going to try to breathe. Right, right. I'm not using mental energy in order to make my body breathe. What about storing memories? I'm not actually trying to store them. My brain does. Is that unconscious? Well, (laughs) I, I love these conversations. It's not that simple. I mean, whenever we're, remember to, there's the process with memory consolidation. So I have to have something occur and then I have to encode it, which sometimes that doesn't even happen. So yes, awareness would play a role because right, if I'm not aware or don't have attention to, I can't encode anything because it's like benign. It it was not noteworthy, yeah. didn't, you know, catch my my attention in any way. Well, there's certain things you could do, obviously, to trigger the storage of memories. So you can sort of play a role in it. But I don't say, hey, Adam, that was a great memory. Store that. (laughs) So in some cases, I kind of do that. I'm like, man, I really want to remember this moment for a long, you know, for as long as I possibly can. And I try to do that in the moment. And then it's like, then I look back, how often have I done that? And how many of those do I remember? And there's obviously a big difference, you know, in terms of the doing and the remembering. Yeah. So good example would be in the case, if I'm wanting to remember something, my awareness might be attuned to or around my sensory data. So I'm aware of what I can see, smell, touch, taste, or hear. And I'm trying to encode that, like take it in. I'm mindful of sort of like I watch the clouds pass in front of me. And that that then I can bank because that working memory puts it short-term working memory, puts it into long-term memory that then I have it to retrieve in the future. But hmm. the the challenge is that the unconscious, like according to, so Freud, any of you are familiar with him, 
pretty profound in the field of psychology. But he said the unconscious mind is composed of all the information stored within us that's inaccessible to our conscious minds. So if you can think about it like an iceberg, conscious is what you see above the water. Unconscious is what is below the water that you might not have access to. Mm. So that's one of the challenges, you know, in even psychology, mindset, behavior, right? We we don't know all of what's right. beneath the iceberg. We just know that it's there and it can play a role in what's what we do see. And this is why people can get quite confused too, because there's just so much learning involved in psychology, some debate, and in a lot of cases, conflicting ideas potentially even, and just a lot of unknown mm-hmm. and still still knowing, still learning what's happening. And as you say, with the brain, it's always a moving target. You know, it's we're still always layering on new information. We're still learning new information. So what we know today is what we'll know tomorrow. And so that that sort of changes. And so anyone listening is like, well, this is kind of hard to grow, kind of hard to follow. Well, that's because it's kind of a moving target. Right. I mean, even when we talk about the brain and how, I mean, we're electrochemical beings, like, you know, there's brain structures, but then there's neurotransmitters, there's neurons, there's ways in which we there's electrical currents, you know, and chemical messengers that all exert an effect. And so, you know, imagine whenever we're having these conversations around the brain, like I'm trying to put a puzzle together, except nobody told me what the picture is supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. But I need to figure it out. So which thing came first? And how does that work? And if I'm staring at one part, I might, you know, amplify that in my perspective while I'm missing out on other relevant data that would actually help me to create the accurate picture. But this is why we study and that it's a constant changing, you know, evolution of ideas and curiosity that go gets explored. And the reason why we're having this conversation and talking about this subject in particular is just because we have a lot of thinkers listening to the show. Right. Mm -hmm. And so one more aspect to problem solving, if you're not aware, is just sort of stepping away from the problem itself and exploring a bit and just sort of examining the different things that happen physiologically, as you mentioned, with the brain. We'll talk about brain waves. We'll talk about different aspects of the brain that are involved in this. But it's really to give you a new perspective on this debunking try harder method to say step away method, this step away to sort of get past or to get unstuck. And new ways to get unstuck from your problems. Yeah, because I'm pretty sure, especially in the world of technology, (laughs) problems emerge, you know, daily. Constantly. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, at any given moment, there's, there's a problem to solve. But it's a matter of like, you know, which one is most important? Which one is gonna get my team, my thing, my product, whatever I'm working on to the next milestone necessary? So it's a lot of sort of sorting in terms of like importance and essentialism. Uh, what's essential to do today? You know, what's most important? And then it's actually solving the hard problems. And in some cases, it could be like really hard problems, like algorithmic problems. And in some cases, it's just more of like, how do I name this thing? Like, believe it or not, naming objects in software is extremely important and very hard in some cases. And the right name will make things sing, will make things work very well. Mm -hmm. And the wrong name can also help them fall flat, right? Catastrophic. Yeah, terrible. Right. And part of that has to do with all of these associations. So I'm always thankful for researchers who spend the time to go dig deeper, you know, Mm -hmm. and that 
help all of us put this um, puzzle together a little bit better. So a couple of those were Corrine Cantor from the Human Synergistics and then Dr. Tricia Stratford, who is a neuroscientist out of Sydney University of Technology. And so they looked at innovative thinking among business leaders to help understand more of the cognitive processes involved in problem solving. And so Cantor said that our unconscious mind is the bulk of our thinking, right? I mean, that's crazy to me, right? But it processes about 11 million bits of information compared to the conscious mind, which does about 40. 11 million bits unconscious to 40 bits conscious. That's not even like in the millions. It's not even like in the thousands. It's just like 40. Right. Okay. And then she goes on and says, the brainwave patterns between an active unconscious mind and a fragmented or stressed state of mind is also vastly different. So this is why it's important to reduce stress, not just for health reasons, but for thinking reasons. To be a better thinker, like we talked about before, to be a better thinker, to have an awareness of your mental framework. Right. And I think a lot of us can relate to this even now. I mean, even just people that I talk with and my own experience, other friends, family, of just sort of decision fatigue with like problem solving around how do I make decisions when I don't know? Like there's so much uncertainty and going, okay, well, if this, then that, and what about this? You know, and then I run up against this wall, and so then I got to flip it and change it. So it's very tiring. Yeah. Yeah. The description alone was very tiring. <laughs> I was, I can imagine the person <laughs> just saying, I can, I can feel for whomever that might have been. Right. So the thing is, is that our brain has to be in an optimal state for our parietal cortex to become active and do the problem solving. This optimal state involves your temporal lobe, where you have all your emotions and stress that need to stay super calm. And so there also needs to be a lot of alpha waves. So these are our calming and relaxing waves that are going on in the brain. And so when our brain, right, so I'm talking brain waves and cognitive function, right, that that's when our parietal cortex can do what it needs to do. So it's like, here's my optimal conditions. It's like, oh. Right. <laughs> and then I then I can solve the problem. Gotcha, gotcha. Let's break down in sort of, I suppose, layman terms, this brain waves. Well, so I'm excited to talk about this because, you know, you've talked and we've talked a little bit about sleep. And basically, like I said, we've got these electrochemical processes going on in our brain. And so electrical activity emanating from the brain is displayed in the form of brain waves. While there are different sort of, we we reference them in terms of hertz and not like H-U-R-T-S, H-E-R-T-Z, right? Capital H, small z. Yes. While one might be in the forefront or sort of like running front, and center, it doesn't mean the other ones aren't there and operating as well. They're just not leading the pack, so to speak. There's generally four categories of these brain waves, okay? And these are ranging from the most activity to the least, okay? So we've got beta waves, okay? And beta waves are when the brain is aroused and actively engaged in mental activities, okay? So these are sort of, these are the fastest of the four different waves, Okay, and they beta waves range from like 15 to 40 cycles in a second. Okay, and so this is I mean, I think of this like the like try harder, 
Like you are yeah. active, engaged, you're making a speech, right? I mean, this is the interesting thing, like in doing speaking, right? While I'm talking and I'm trying to remember the sequence of all the things I'm going to share with an audience, I'm 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 doing the one thing and the rest of my brain is still remembering the sort of form of where I was gonna go, what I was gonna say, and if I went this way or that way and I had a hiccup or a question or something else, I'm still tracking. So thinking, you know, multiple cognitive demands, that's beta waves at its finest. Then we've got alpha waves, right? Alpha is represents non-arousal. So sort of the contrast, dare I say, to beta. These are slower and yet higher in amplitude. So these are like 8 to 12 hertz. So someone who's done something and then sits down, or if you're meditating, you're usually in this alpha state. Or I, I love this. I mean, I think of it sort of like being out in nature and those things that sort of speak to you. It's like everything is all right with the world. Like, oh, right. or it could just be, you know, the right Starbucks coffee. Right. Whatever it is to you, really. Yeah. So going down, then I got theta waves. So theta waves are typically even greater amplitude, but slower frequency. So this means by frequency, I'm talking like five to eight cycles a second, right? So beta was up there at that 15 to 40. And then we had nine to 14 for our alpha waves. And this is five to eight cycles a second. So think loop-de-loop. A person who has taken time off from a task and begins to daydream is often in theta, driving on a freeway and like, oh, shoot, how did, wait, I got home. How did, how did I get here? Yeah. <laughs> that be theta. Or I was following the directions and I missed my turn because I was just so right lost in the moment. Yeah. So this is interesting because a lot of people who do freeway driving actually get super good ideas during this time. When you run outside, it's in this state where things are so automated that you like literally mentally disengage from them. Hmm. Well, it's almost like as if you let your, you let all these things that are normally stressed take a rest. Yep. Right. I love that. Stressed and take a rest. <laughs> yeah. It's all sort of activated and they get a chance to sort of like just chill out and take a seat. Mm hmm. Yeah. And so the other thing is that this is typically theta waves is the thoughts you think during this time are are very positive. They free flow. There isn't this sort of censoring or guilt. It's like, you know, just I feel good. And then dropping down, we've got delta waves. And these are the greatest amplitude and the slowest frequency. So they typically center around 1.5 to 4 cycles per second. <laughs> They, they don't go to zero. Do you know mm. why? Why? Because then you're dead. Oh, boy. <laughs> right? Don't go to zero. Right? So deep, dreamless sleep would take you down to that lowest frequency. Okay? So two to three cycles a second. I mean, think of how crazy that is. So delta, two to three cycles a second as compared to beta, you know, which is 15 to 40. It's pretty pretty big difference. So... You know, when we go to bed and read for a few minutes before we try to go to sleep, we're likely in that low beta. Then you put the book down, turn off the lights. Then they go from beta to alpha to theta. And then finally, we fall into delta. Okay. But the other thing that these researchers looked at were gamma waves, which some research, this is sort of a, a newer emerging sort of thing that people are taking a look at. Um, but gamma waves are the fastest 
of the brainwaves and relate to the simultaneous processing of information from different brain areas. And I think this is why it's so significant, right? Brainwaves pass information both fast but quiet. So our minds literally have to be quiet in order to access this gamma. Mm. Meaning uh, not cluttered. Mm-hmm. Not full of stress, not full. And I don't just mean like stress, like, oh, I'm stressed out, but more like stress in terms of like decision fatigue, cognitive load. Those are all stressful mm-hmm. things to a brain. We, you know, mm-hmm. you may not emotionally be stressed, but your brain may be stressed in terms of how, how much load it's under. Yeah. So it's interesting because so researchers speculate that gamma rhythms modulate perception and consciousness. And that a greater presence of this gamma relates to expanded consciousness. So it's not surprising then that this is highly active in states of sort of universal love, higher virtue, or like altruism. So what does gamma fit in in terms of if it's the it, – we didn't mention the hertz, but the hertz seem to be higher than the others. Right. So it, it seems to be a faster brainwaves. Right. It's 38 to 42 hertz, which is above the beta Right, because that's right. twelve to thirty-eight, but it's this juxtaposition, right? That it's high frequency, but it's so it's fast, but it's quiet. Hmm. I don't know. I think like you know, electric cars that are fast, but quiet. Uh huh. Yeah. You can't hear them. Stealth-like. So how do we get there then? How do we get these? How do we engage these gamma waves? Well, part of that is being able to calm down. That is the key thing. Mm. The unconscious brain is built to deal with more complex problems, but usually we don't let it because I'm trying to try harder consciously. Snap to it, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> Figure it out. So this is why when we take our foot off the accelerator and back away and create a sort of hiccup that it allows our brain to sort of defrag For a moment, go do something, you know, especially I would think, you know, more sort of process based activities, right, where you're more mindful, you're engaged in it. That helps your brain go like, oh, okay, let me sort of shift gears and then I find it. So it's like I I loosen the constraints so that I can actually allow my mind to discover as opposed to trying to make it fit. Interesting. Yeah. So this is what these researchers, Stratford and Cantor, showed, that there was this increase in gamma waves right across the entire brain for each participant with a decrease in the beta waves. So these gamma waves are associated with fast learning and the sort of, aha, like, oh, my goodness, I finally see the answer. Like, how did I miss that? Right. It was right there. Right? Mm. It's so deep for me. You know, I, I can appreciate this knowledge. I can appreciate this, the depth of this. It's still difficult to really understand how to, I guess, play, be a participant. Aside from the idea of an empty mind and gamma waves live there, you know, this sort of calm mind. Yeah. And, and de-stressing isn't just the one way or defragging or stepping away is, is several ways to induce this opportunity. Yeah, so it's interesting. When I was in graduate school, I actually had the opportunity to learn this type of um, therapeutic treatment modality called biofeedback, some neurofeedback. And 
we mainly used it to treat um, people struggling with anxiety or attention deficit um, hyperactivity disorder. But what was fascinating is so what do we we would do is actually sort of hook up, you know, electrodes to different parts of people's heads. Right. And so imagine, and then they would watch a computer screen and they had to, through the feedback of a game on a computer screen, figure out how to make the spaceship go or pull back just as based on what was going on. So imagine a sort of live feedback loop of whether or not you're calm or activated. I, I just think it's super fascinating because there's actually, you know, some, you know, newer treatment modalities, you know, relative to depression, wherein it it really is a sort of modification of brain waves because these play a role in how we go about doing our lives. And so what it is 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 really getting feedback that you go, oh my goodness, when I focus sort of on an image or go into a certain place in my mind, it, it's very much a sort of learned um, practice wherein this is the state where I function optimally. Yeah. Right. Well, it's instant feedback too. I mean, if, especially if you've got, you know, the electrodes on your brain or on your, on your head and a computer screen or something showing you like, as you change your thoughts, this ship moves forward or backwards because of your ability to sort of influence these beta waves or these brain waves, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's sort of instant, whereas if you don't have that, you're assuming in a lot of ways, you know, like yeah. based on how you feel, your emotions, potentially even solving the problem. If we're specifically talking about the try harder method and, you know, getting unstuck and, you know, sort of disconnecting to get unstuck, that you, the only way you really know if you've had a solution or that this has happened is because an outcome. Yeah. Sure. But this is the fascinating thing of learning and practicing it. You know, so Dr. Stratford said it takes eight weeks on average to build a new neural pathway. So practicing it every day can help build this new habit of like, imagine you're teaching yourself a gear to go into and you can associate it like you can go, I'm in this environment. I go in this place in my brain. Like this is my place of calm where I feel like there's more, you know, room to breathe It's fun. There's positive emotions, right? Cantor said, even though you are not attending to that problem anymore, you've activated the neural network in the unconscious mind. So when I step away, right, even when I stop looking at it, the back office is still working on it. That's right. And it's reorganizing all that information that you input at the knowledge load stage, making connections between data points that are quite disparate. We wouldn't consciously think to do it, which is like, that is the coolest thing, right? It's like, oh, you didn't know you got all this stuff down back here to like solve that? Yeah. It's practicing really sort of going down deeper. I think of it like sort of mindfulness meditation, wherein even though I'm in an environment that might be provocative internally or there's lots of stimuli externally that I figure out like how to block those out. I mean, having done competitive gymnastics, I think about it with competitions. There's tons of other things going on, but it was really about being in the moment, doing what I needed to do at that time and getting myself into a gear. And this is how I would even train the girls that I coached of sort of, hey, you know, this is why we we train like this and practice and we visualize. So it's like, it's 
this is the zone in which I do my best work. Right. You sort of kick into once this thing has happened, it's go time. Yeah. Right. Now it's now it's game game mindset, competition mindset, whatever is necessary to sort of like flip a switch essentially from you know everyday normal whatever to okay now it's time to completely focus on competing and winning and doing our best or whatever the mindset might need to be. Right. And this is why even the brainwave research is relative to, you know, athletes and like that sort of optimal function is, you know, not being so energized, calm, but very present. Yeah. Again, a sort of juxtaposition. So, you know, when we were talking about this, Adam, you, I think, had mentioned a strategy that you've used a lot to sort of help you. It's called Pomodoro. It's it's a getting things done thing. It's just a way of helping you focus. But I, I find it similar to the whole do, step away, do, step away, sort of like this uh, constraint of focused work with a reward of a break. And then after a certain amount of time, you get another longer break. So I'll, I'll sort of break it down. But I don't know the exact technique. I don't know the written black and white version of the rules for this thing. But as I understand it, it's essentially chunks of work. And that chunk of work is broken up into generally a 25-minute sprint or session of work where you're going to laser focus on whatever it might be. And that whatever it might be is your thing. You know, 25 minutes, then you get a break of some sort of sustained time, three minutes, five minutes, seven minutes, whatever you can really prescribe for yourself. But I think the basis is five minutes. And so you can do a number of these, they call them pomodoros, sessions of these focused work. And then you get a sustained break of like 10 or 15 minutes. And I look at that like I get a chance to sort of like laser focus on some tasks and I get to take a break. So I get to reward myself with uh, something I learned recently called uh, movement snacks where I get up and walk. Right. Right. Like especially as we start to homework more often. I've already done this a long time, but I never considered it that this is my chance to sort of like give myself a snack not food snack, but like other healthy snacks, like change my thought patterns, disconnect from the problem, get up and actually walk, lift a dumbbell, go hug my kid, whatever it might be to sort of do in these moments. So this Pomodoro effect, this Pomodoro technique, you know, has, if you just practice it at a basic level, it has some benefits. But if you, you know, layer it into these other things we've been learning uh, about breaks and things that feed your life in other ways, then you can sort of layer those in, like do some sit-ups in that five minutes, you know, do a quick exercise. And that way, rather than doing one swath of movement, you know, in an exercise session, you can sort of exercise in many different ways, mentally and physically throughout the day if you practice this technique. I'm so glad you even brought that up because I'm super excited about talking about this relative to exercise, right? Don't everybody get discouraged. Right. It'll be fun because what the research shows is that ironically, it's it's not just a physical activity that helps us be healthy and stay healthy, but actually a non sedentary lifestyle. So the mm -hmm. movement snacks like, yes, hallelujah. And I mean, I get that. I have a very, you know, sedentary job. I and now that I'm working from home even more so I move far less. I, I thought you were on an elliptical the whole time. <laughs> No, but they have be cool. <laughs> They have them. They have bikes that have space for a laptop to be able to work simultaneously. Right. I think that might create a very interesting sort of 
effect with patients if I were riding on a bike. Exercising. Yeah. Well, I'm listening. Don't worry. I'm just really going for this this last mile here. (laughs) Couldn't imagine that. That would be kind of fun. Yeah, but always finding a way to layer in some sort of motion is key. Yeah. Well, so that brings me to talk about our emotions, right? Because if calm is the ideal sort of state, then I have to be aware of if my feelings are running you know, interference with what I'm trying to do. So am I fearful? Am I stressed? Right? Because that is definitely not going to help me in doing, you know, creative thinking, active problem solving. Right? So this could look like work expectations. It could be even self-expectations about performance or constraints around time. Like, hey, you got to get this project done and it needs to be done yesterday. (laughs) Right. These are going to, you know, impact how you perform because they activate that fear response. I don't know, though. I mean, there's some people, though, and I can even look back at my life. Are you advocating for these constraints or against them? Against them. I'm saying in this case, when I'm talking about emotions as interference, I'm not talking other constraints like setting up sort of parameters to work within. I'm talking about being emotionally activated. I'll look back at your example of when you were in grad school, you know, staying up late, waking up early, you know, that you had a time box. Like you woke up early, the problem wasn't solved. You had to solve it in a specific time. So you, that was your constraint. Like for me, I thrive, not always, but there are moments where I really thrive with constraints, with these sort of, you know, got to get it done last 11th hour kind of thing. Well, so my question to you, though, would be then if you aren't actually in a different state during those mind moments than what you think you are. Probably. Right? Because you're associated, like you're like, I'm in the zone. Oh, yeah. This is like where I need to be and how I need to get that that thing done. And somehow magically, in most cases, I do or they do or we do if that's the scenario. And that's the perplexing thing is like, could you have done it without that constraint otherwise? Like, did you have to wait to the bitter end? Right. I mean, I think about it like times where certain tasks are just aversive and I'm like, oh, I just don't want to do them. Right. But you put it off. Right. And then I'm like, so now I'm under that stressful constraint. But then it takes me like no time. And I'm like, why did I do that? <laughs> why did I make it harder than it needed to be? Because I created some aversion around it when if I just got in that gear. Right. Well, that's the whole idea of like thriving under pressure. You know, a, a literal example is the way diamonds are formed with pressure. Like there's certain things that, and that's a whole different scenario, but that's an example and often used when it comes to like, okay, just add pressure and this beautiful thing happens. Like take a piece of coal add an immense amount of pressure, diamond gets created. Yeah. I mean, that's a super basic version of creating diamonds. (laughs) Thank you. you. Yeah. Right. Well, I don't want to lose this um, with our audience in terms of differentiating like fear because not all stress is bad stress. Like exercise is still, you know, it's it's voluntary stress, right? Like I'm choosing to put myself under pressure. And so that is different than like fear stress. And so maybe a caveat that I I use is talking about it like threat, 
there is some perceived threat, either, you know, substandard performance, losing my job. I mean, I think this, you know, contributes to a number of people and challenges that they feel at the present time, right? Like people have trouble concentrating, problem solving, because there's so much uncertainty. And so it was actually Serene Pillay, a Harvard psychologist and founder of a neurobusiness group, told, said, uncertainty can activate the fear center of the brain, thereby disrupting the thinking processes critical to successful innovation. So my brain can't work as a whole. It's like, imagine that I sort of, you know, vacuum sealed off certain areas of my brain so it can't work as a comprehensive whole. Therefore, I'm going to have, you know, other constraints that won't allow me to come up with novel solutions. One thing that I think is important for our listeners to take away is step back and step away to get unstuck, but really using this sort of not yet in terms of problem solving. So this allows you to go, I have the knowledge that I'm going to be able to solve this problem and I can stick with it, but I have to be able to remove myself or disengage from it in order to reallocate my energy elsewhere, which then allows space for my unconscious creativity to emerge. And like that's really at the heart of innovation and creativity and feeling like you gave your all and can feel amazing about the work that you put out. All right, head to the comments and let us know what you think about getting unstuck. Do you step away? Do you try harder? What do you do to get through? Head to changelaw.com slash brain science slash one nine. This is episode 19. Open up your show notes and click discuss on changelaw news. We'd love to hear from you. And we'd also love for you to join us in Slack. It's totally free. Head to changelaw.com slash community. Join us in the brain science Slack channel. Talk with me, Marielle, and others from the community. Of course, huge thanks to our partners, Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. Also, thanks to Breakmaster Cylinder for making all of our beats. And last but not least, if you want to hear more shows like this, subscribe to our master feed to get all of our podcasts. Head to changelaw.com slash master or go into your podcast app and search for Changelaw Master. You'll find it. It is one feed to rule them all. Get all of our shows as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks for listening to Brain Science. We'll see you again soon.